daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping has called on Shanghai to deepen reform and opening up and enhance its development momentum and competitiveness. China says it's ready to work closely with fellow developing countries to build a green and low-carbon future. Israel says its campaign against Hamas will continue with full force as the ground operation has expanded to southern Gaza. And a U.S. Commerce chief again has hyped the so-called China threat to prevent the development of Chinese chips. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping says Shanghai should deepen reform and opening up from a higher starting point and enhance its development momentum and competitiveness. He made the remarks during an inspection tour in Shanghai that ran from last Tuesday to Saturday. He on Sunday also visited a memorial home of the new 4th Army in Yanchun City, East China's Jiangsu province, on his way back to Beijing. Wang Haiyang has more. As China's financial hub, Shanghai is a gateway to the world and an important center of trade and finance. During his inspection tour, Chinese President Xi Jinping urged Shanghai to focus on the construction of international centers of economy, finance, trade, shipping, and science and technological innovation. President Xi visited the Shanghai Futures Exchange. He urged the exchange to speed up efforts to achieve world-class status and he called on the organization to play a broader role in the nation's futures regulatory system to establish an international financial center. The Shanghai Futures Exchange has attracted more than 2 million investors and enterprises from all over the world. In 2022, the annual turnover was more than 180 trillion yuan, around 25.2 trillion U.S. dollars. While visiting an exhibition in Zhangjiang Science City in Pudong area, the president said Shanghai should take the lead in becoming a globally influential center for sci-tech innovation. Shanghai's expenditure on research and development is expected to account for around 4.5% of the city's GDP by 2025. It also aims to host more than 26,000 high-tech enterprises and about 560 foreign-founded research and development centers by 2025. President Xi also heard work reports from party and government officials. During their meeting, he underlined the need for Shanghai to improve the city's core competitiveness, make breakthroughs in core technologies in key fields, and boost the transformation of its traditional industries. He said more efforts should be made to promote high-level financial opening up to better serve the real economy, set tech innovation, and the joint development of the Belt and Road Initiative. President Xi also said Shanghai should implement a strategy of upgrading its pilot-free trade zone in full, promote the development of the International Trade Center, and enhance its capacity of global allocation of shipping resources. That was Wang Haiyang reporting. So for more on the trip, joining us on the line is Dr. Yao Shujie, Chonghong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. Professor, let's talk about the timing and purpose of the visit this time. What are the profound details of this trip to Shanghai and Jiangsu that you have observed compared to previous visits? President Xi Jinping, uh, since he took the presidency, 
over 10 years ago, he had been uh, very conscientious about high economy development. And uh, by driving high economy development, it means that he have to focus on the key area. And uh, the Yangshik River Delta, led by Shanghai, uh, surrounded with uh, Jiangsu, Zhejiang, and now Anhui, is the most economy uh, important powerhouse of China. It also have the biggest population cluster of over 200 million people and accounting for a significant percent of China's GDP. Now, more and more uh, in the past, we, we see Shanghai is the economy and trade center and also the shipping center. Uh, now, uh, recently, the last two decades, Shanghai has been transforming into a major uh, financial center in the in the region as well as in the world. Uh, with the futures exchange opening and also the rapid expansion of the futures market in Shanghai, it means Shanghai is going to be even a much more important uh, financial center in the world and also in, in China. Now, uh, for China to transform uh, from a traditional manufacturing uh, power into a high-level uh, digital and uh, you know automation uh, center of manufacturing and also high services. Technology and science is the key driving uh, factor for this purpose. So more recently, you can see the central government policy led by uh, President Xi Jinping is ever more focused on research and innovation. Mm. And research and innovation have to be embedded with the key sectors the key uh, cities, such as Shanghai, and also the, the manufacturing service industry surrounding Shanghai. So making Shanghai is the most important uh, you know, technological and innovation center is probably the, uh, the, the, the key concern of President Xi's visit this time. And I think the purpose of this time visit is quite different from before. What he tried to emphasize is that China's high-level economy development has to be based on strong uh, research and technological innovation. And this is the key message uh, for this visit this time. Professor, speaking of transforming Shanghai into specific centers, during the visit to Shanghai back in 2014, President Xi Jinping asked Shanghai to accelerate its march into a globally influential scientific and technological innovation center. Then Shanghai's development positioning was expanded from four centers to five centers, that is, to build an international economic center, a financial center, a trade center, shipping center and a scientific and technological innovation center. So could you please elaborate more on the importance of building these five centers in Shanghai? How will this shape Shanghai into an international hub? Yes, I mean, whatever center it is, without science and technology, the center is, you know, is not uh, the most powerful center by any standard. So despite Shanghai is already making remarkable achievement in terms of the expansion of the economy base, uh, the shipping, and also the financial services, uh, and, 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 and so on. If there is no scientific uh, innovation as the base, Shanghai would not be the most powerful and leading city in China and the world. And this is why uh, this time is highly timing, uh, because, um, you know, as I mentioned, 
Uh, Xi Jinping and also the central government have been emphasizing use technology to drive the economic growth in the new era. Uh, this is the, the new concept of the, the so-called uh, new era development, which focuses on innovation technology, uh, a, you know, coordination between regions, uh, green uh, revolution, and also opening, as well as the, you know, the share, uh, you know, uh, outcome of economic, economic growth. Now, Shanghai is the most powerful center of China's economic growth, and to continue Shanghai's leading position, the only way forward is to use technology. And Shanghai already have based, uh, have already built up a, a lot of technological activity, activity, as you just mentioned, the high tech industry, uh, the you know the research and higher education. Shanghai is probably, uh, you know in parallel with Beijing, and to some extent, it's even uh, better than in Beijing in some uh, other aspects. So uh, Shanghai and Beijing are now the most powerful research uh, base in China. And this is um, the, the purpose of China's high-level development, because in order to become a high-income technology, high-income economy, and in the future to become an advanced uh, you know, developed economy, we need some, uh, you know, innovation hub like such as Shanghai to lead the way. Then, Professor, as China is facing challenges from the United States and its high or core tech suppression, how do you see this uh, visit aligning with China's broader technological ambitions and a global positioning? Yes, um, I, China have uh, faced a lot of uh, competition as well as some sort of technological. Uh, you know, uh, blockage by uh, particularly the United States, which to some extent, uh, United States want to protect the dominant position, try to uh, monopolize, continue to monopolize abnormal profit in the high-end industry and uh, innovation sector. Now, in order to break the blockage, in order to, uh, to, to play with the United States on a level playing field, China have to be strong to be strong in research and technology. And to do so, I think some sort of uh, location advantage of Shanghai and some other major cities, I mentioned uh, Beijing and, mm-hmm. and others, Shenzhen, of course, they have to be uh, a central location so that it can attract the major element, the key element of research and technology, particularly human power, uh, human talent, and also investment and focus on the key industries that can drive a long-term uh, dynamic economic growth for China. Professor, could you please tell us more about the locations President Xi visited in Shanghai during the trip? Because he mentioned the importance of accelerating the construction of a world-class futures exchange during his visit to Shanghai Futures Exchange. What significance does this hold uh, in the context of China's financial goals and international competitiveness? Yes, you, if you look at China in the global uh, perspective, I mean, China is the biggest manufacturer uh, and, and the biggest exporter. And um, because China also lacks quite a lot of uh, major material and, and, and raw materials, it has to be imported from the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So China has to spend, uh, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars each year buying foreign resources. 
and much of the foreign resources can be traded on the futures market for two purposes. Uh, one purpose to make, make sure there is a sustainable uh, supply of raw material, and secondly, to maintain a, a foreseeable and, and predictable uh, prices level of this commodity. And the futures market, particularly the oil futures market, which have been very uh, phenomenal in, in Shanghai and expanding. Oil is the most, one of the most important raw material that China needs. China has to spend, uh, you know, to import more than 70% of its oil demand from abroad. So by establishing the oil futures market, and maybe in the future, there are some other futures markets to follow. For example, iron ore, iron sand, and so on. Uh, and, and agricultural products. So there is a huge potential, particularly China have the, the, the biggest demand in the world compared to any other country. And mm-hmm. secondly, uh, Shanghai have the, you know, the trading infrastructure, the financial infrastructure to support these kinds of activities. So uh, by nature, I think Shanghai got to be the center of these kinds of trading for raw materials and other things. Professor, one last question. Very briefly, after his trip to Shanghai, President Xi also visited a memorial hall of the New Fourth Army in Yanchen City, East China's Jiangsu province, on his way back to Beijing. He emphasized the significance of historical choices being determined by the sentiments of the people. How do you interpret this statement, and what lessons can be drawn for the present and the future? Yeah, the, uh, you know, anyone who knows the history of Chinese uh, Communist Party and also the Nationalist Party and also the, the anti-Japanese war during the Second World War. Uh, basically, at the time, you know, uh, the Communist Party was, uh, was still relatively small compared to the Nationalist Party. And um, by the time uh, the, the two parties united together to fight against the Japanese, and there are two armies under the under the national uh, you know government leadership. One army is the ex army, and the other is the new fourth army. The new fourth army was relatively new, and it is the activity. The, the the activity is focused in this uh, eastern area. Now, people's choice is to choose uh, to follow the communist party, and in the end, uh, the communist party. Uh, you know, led China to uh, independence. And this is why it's the choice of the Communist Party. The choice is not the, the Nationalist Party. And this is reflected by the significance of the vision. Thank you, Dr. Yao, for your insightful opinions and your time. That's Dr. Yao Shujie, Chang Kong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. Coming up, China says it's ready to work closely with the fellow developing countries to build a green and low-carbon future. We take a look at China's role in the global agenda for a sustainable future. You are listening to Road Today. Stay with us. You are listening to Road Today. Chinese Vice Premier Ding Xuexiang has expressed the country's readiness to work closely with fellow developing countries to build a green and low-carbon future. He made the remarks while addressing the G77 and China Leader Summit in Dubai. Meanwhile, China's Special Envoy for Climate Change, Xie Zhenghua, has reaffirmed the country's pledge to accelerate green and low-carbon transformation of energy. 
China's carbon emission intensity has declined significantly. The production and sales of new energy vehicles have remained the world's largest for eight consecutive years. More than half the world's new energy vehicles are running in China. The installed capacity of renewable energy has surpassed that of coal power, and the installed capacity of wind solar power ranks first in the world. He said China has established the world's largest carbon market, covering greenhouse gas emissions at the COP28 Local Climate Action Summit in Dubai. So for more on this, joining us now is Dr. He Wenping, Senior Research Fellow at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thanks for joining us, Dr. He. Hi, uh thanks for having me. Uh, First of all, let's delve into China's role in the global agenda for a sustainable future first. As COP28 is underway, how do you perceive China's role in shaping the global climate agenda? And what expectations do you have regarding China's contributions to the conference in terms of commitments, policies, and collaborations to address the urgent climate challenges the world is facing today? Well, China has been always, uh, you know, very actively participating in this, uh, uh, you know, global uh, uh, dialogue and global negotiation on this uh, carbon emission. And, uh, you know, I still remember uh, mm-hmm. many years ago when this Paris Agreement uh, on dealing with global uh, this uh, warming uh, has been finally reached. And that was also due to uh, this uh, contribution from China. And uh, given those years, uh, China, you know, uh, already make our own uh, this uh, commitment, saying uh, by which year this uh, peak of the carbon emission and also carbon uh, neutrality all has been made very clear, the roadmap. And uh, if we travel, uh, you know, in, in China domestically, you will see a lot of change has been taken place, mm-hmm. uh, like this uh, blue sky and then very fresh air. Uh, even being the Beijing citizen by myself, I can witness yeah, all the changes uh, day by day, monthly by month, and uh, year by year. Uh, now, even my foreign friends, uh, when they travel to China, they also witness the uh, same thing happening. Because now we have been adopted a very strict uh, this uh, like a carbon emission policy. Uh, our Ministry of Environment also gets a lot of uh, those uh, you know uh, authority uh, to play in this uh, watchdog uh, to see uh, if uh, any factory. Uh, they have, uh, you know, this uh, uh, emission, you know, uh, beyond this uh, regulation, well, they will be immediately called to stop uh, their production. So we are no longer like uh, speed matters, those uh, development approach. Now it's quality matters, uh, development approach. And now our idea is a high, you know, quality development idea. Uh, it's also talking about, uh, you know, this uh, green development. Yeah, only the green development will be the basic color uh, for all those other developments. So with those strong determination, now China has been playing, I think, a very you know active those leadership role uh, in you know contributing for this a uh, green development idea in the world, and also uh, playing our contribution role for uh, this uh, like uh, climate change uh, this issue. Ever since uh, all those years, even last year when the Egypt uh, was hosting the COP27, uh, this uh, you know this meeting, I think China also team up together with African countries and also calling for uh, this uh, you know uh, climate change issue cannot be just uh, in the lip service. Uh, this this stage uh, mm-hmm. should uh, come up with the action. 
Speaking of collaborations with other countries, uh, just several days before the conference, a new study report under the title China's Belt and Road Initiative Turn Away from Coal was published by Wood Mackenzie. It highlights a significant shift in China's BRI energy mix towards renewables. Uh, could you please elaborate on the factors influencing this transition and its implications for global energy sustainability? Oh yes, the BRI uh, is the biggest uh, this uh, you know inclusive development uh, this initiative uh, because China now has uh, engaged with uh, thousands of uh, different uh, projects, uh, many focused on infrastructure, construction, uh, industrialization, others uh, development uh, with all those BRI partner uh, countries. So when you are doing this, a lot of this connectivity, uh, you know, this construction project. Of course, uh, this green development idea should be the core. Uh, that is why now we are talking about uh, green BRI. Uh, when we also talking about like uh, uh, digital BRI, innovative or uh, innovation BRI, so all those ideas, uh, this uh, come up with this green development as the basic, as the core. Uh, that is uh, to say, yeah. For example, I visited like uh, Mombasa, Nairobi, uh, this uh, railway. Uh, linking the harbor city in Kenya, Mombasa, to the capital city of Nairobi in Kenya. When this railway was building, I visited there, and then I discovered uh, this railway, uh, you know, has done very good. Uh, this protecting and the combination uh, with, the, you know, wildlife uh, protecting and also those uh, green natural, <coughs> uh, this uh, reserve the park, uh, all those green development in Kenya. Uh, because this railway has been uh, set up with a high supporter to the volume, uh, not a paved track on the ground. Uh, the way for that, uh, even though the cost has been added more, because it will protect uh, all those wildlife yeah, pass by uh, in that national, uh, you know, nature reserve park in Kenya. So this is a very good example uh, for, you know, BRI, this green development idea. It's not saying, oh, we just pave the track, that's it. And then ignore all those wildlife protecting and uh, also the nature protecting. So I think uh, many projects now undergoing uh, in Africa, in other partner countries, this green development, always uh, green BI, always has been there in the mind uh, in a very uh, firm way. Then, Dr. Ho, what factors contribute to China's leadership in renewable energy installations today, and how might this influence the global transition to clean energy? Yeah, because China's economy is the second biggest economy in the world, and also our size and our population, and also China ever since 2010, uh, we are becoming the leading uh, industrial production country. Uh, this GDP, uh, you know, coming from industrial industrial uh, this uh, capacity building now also even surpassed the United States. So that is why China has every reason now and also have all this responsibility uh, to play the leadership role uh, for, uh, you know, uh, promoting this uh, green development. Uh, that is also why now in recent decades uh, we have been doing a lot. Like, uh, uh, for example, in Beijing, uh, in the winter season, we no longer like burning the coal uh, to have our home heating. Uh, this home heating system, uh, for example, in my apartment, in all our community, now we are using the gas. So all those, uh, those clean energy, uh, even the uh, 
new batteries, so the new energy car in China also becoming the very first top commodity in this first half of this year. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Dr. He, for insightful opinions. That's Dr. He Wenping, senior research fellow at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. This is Road Today. Stay with us. This is Road Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. Israel says its campaign against Hamas will continue with full force as the ground offensive has expanded to southern Gaza. A Hamas spokesperson says its fighters clashed with Israeli troops about two kilometers from the southern city of Yunis. Israeli tanks have cut off the road between Yunis and Deir al-Abala in central Gaza, dividing the besieged strip into three. The expansion of Israel's ground operation has also so sparked concerns over the severe humanitarian crisis in Gaza. So to talk more on the recent development of the Israel-Palestine conflict, we are joined by Dr. Greg Barton, Professor of Global Islamic Politics at Deakin University. Thanks for joining us, Professor. Great to be back with you. Thank you. Professor, Israel and Hamas renewed military operations in the Gaza Strip after a temporary ceasefire expired. How do you assess the changes and further developments of the current military operations when compared to the period before the ceasefire? Well, the great hope was that we'd see a significant change, that the the first seven weeks uh, came with a terrible human cost, 15,000 lives lost, we think. Uh, including perhaps five or more thousand children. Um, so not, not very precise, not very surgical strikes. Uh, America in particular has been very strident, but many European nations as well, to, to Israel saying, yes, you have a right to self-defense, you have a right to go after Hamas to, to neutralize the um, military threat, but you don't have a right to do so in a way that um, takes away so many civilian lives. But so far, we haven't seen a change. And now we've seen the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense of America, come out and say, not only is this um, the wrong thing to do, to have so many civilian lives lost, um, but it's also against Israel's security interest, because you're going to have to find peace through political negotiations once the military campaign is over. And this just makes it harder. As you said, the pressure from the United States on Israel is increasing. Uh, U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris stated that Israel has the right to self-defense, but how it's done is crucial. And also on the same day, U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin stated that Israel has a, a moral responsibility to protect civilians. And French President Emmanuel Macron issued a warning to Israel, saying completely destroying Hamas could mean a war lasting for 10 years. So how do these statements reflect the evolving Western perspective on Israel? military actions, how might this impact the diplomatic dynamics in the region? I think what's becoming very clear now is that uh, friends of Israel in the West have lost patience with Israel for what it's doing. Uh, I mean, they're very, very clear saying Israel has a right and responsibility to to defense. Uh, it, It needs to deal with the military threat posed by Hamas. And we can't go back to a situation in the Gaza Strip where Hamas is in charge. Okay, that's accepted. But that doesn't mean you can achieve that military end by any means. And indeed, the military purposes is a means to an end, but it's not the end in itself. The end lies in a just and enduring political solution. And if you leave such bitterness that uh, so many civilian lives have been lost, so many women and children in particular, 
it's going to be that much harder to, to achieve the political solution, which is the only guarantee of lasting peace. So Lord Austin's point is, Israel, you're doing the wrong thing, even though you have a right for self-defense and we support you in doing you know, self-defense. But not only is this the morally the wrong thing, it's against mm-hmm. your interest. You're not going to help yourself. You won't have peace and security for, for Israelis or for Palestinians unless you pay attention to the end goal of finding a political solution. So I, I think time is running out for Israel. I don't think it will be given another seven weeks to carry on the carnage. We saw the seven weeks before the last ceasefire. Mm-hmm. I think if it carries on at the rate it's carrying on this week, within weeks we will see the brakes being put on and, and it being told we're not going to support you any further in doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, reports show, you also mentioned this earlier, the death toll in Gaza has surpassed 15,500 since the outbreak, with 70% being women and children. So in light of the high casualty figures, especially among vulnerables, how might the resumed military operations following the ceasefire further exacerbate the humanitarian situation for civilians in Gaza? And in your opinion, what steps can be taken by the international community at this point to uh, mitigate the impact on vulnerable populations? I think we're fast approaching a crunch point where um, Israel's friends say to it, we're not going to support you in doing what you're doing, making the same mistakes the way you did the previous seven weeks. It's just not ex- acceptable. I mean, if we've lost 15, 16,000 lives, and we don't know the number, of course, it, it, it may be higher because of the number of bodies under under rubble, but it's certainly of that order. Um, Joe Biden at one stage said we can't trust these figures because they're coming from Hamas. That's true. But he later on retracted that and agreed that all international agencies agree that this is roughly the scale of the death toll and it's just not acceptable. We can't see that being doubled in the next six, seven weeks. That's just not an option. So, uh, you know, it may be that the government of Netanyahu, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, is just pushing as fast as it can because it knows that it's going to run out of time. Uh, Netanyahu himself is currently back in the courts with with legal action against him. The moment he's no longer Prime Minister, he's particularly vulnerable. So he has a personal motive to keep on with this war. Um, he's more concerned, it would seem, with his political partners who are very right-wing than it is with the people of Israel or international friends of Israel. But I think we're reaching a point where um, the international community will say, we're not going to support you doing what you've done this last two months. It has to be different now. And that doesn't mean the end to a, a campaign against Hamas. It just means not on this indiscriminate scale, not with this level of uh, aerial bombardment and uh, targeting of civilians. It's just not acceptable. Then do you see a next ceasefire agreement in sight? What key factors or conditions need to be addressed or negotiated to successfully reach the next ceasefire agreement? Yeah, no, that's the big question. And to be fair, uh, Hamas, you know, is bears responsibility for the failure of this last ceasefire extension. There were negotiations to extend. Hamas didn't want to go ahead and extend. Hamas has said that its requirement is that um, there be a permanent ceasefire. I think at the minimum to achieve that, all of the hostages would have to be returned. Uh, But I think it's also unrealistic to expect for a must to expect that um, that's the end of the problem. They can go back to running the Gaza Strip. So I think that the minimum we could be looking at is all of the hostages, 135 or so with Hamas and, and its partner groups like the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, for them to be returned and then um, for Hamas to give up control of the Gaza Strip. 
Um, of course, most of them, Hamas senior leadership, are outside the Gaza Strip in Doha or in Lebanon or elsewhere. So in a sense, they've got a exit clause. Um, the military operation to completely destroy Hamas's political um, power, you know, as, as uh, Macron has said, that could take that could take years, even a decade. Mm-hmm. And no one is going to give Israel that amount of time or accept that many civilian casualties is just just unreasonable. Mm-hmm. Professor, could you please elaborate more on the shift of U.S. attitude on Israel, considering the challenges in reaching a lasting ceasefire? What role does the world community expect from global powers like the United States to play at this point? Well, what the world expects, um, and I think this is all all around the world, and, and I think there's a big difference between the global south and the global north, as the sometimes described. Mm-hmm. I think particularly in the global south, the majority of the world, the expectation is that U.S. stands by its values. And when it speaks about human rights and protecting civilians in war, uh, that it, you know, it, it literally puts its money where its mouth is and stops supplying armaments to Israel until Israel backs off, not gives up its campaign against Hamas, we accept that's reasonable, but backs off a campaign that's so indiscriminate in the loss of civilian lives. Now, this was always there from day one. And America arguably was too slow in in in, in you know pushing its case. Uh, you could argue that under Netanyahu, who's been in power for pretty much 16 years, um, bluff and bluster has always triumphed, and and he's gotten away with, you know, pushing his line. I think it's pretty clear America and its allies are no longer going to accept that. So we're sort of reaching a crunch point. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Professor, for your time and analysis. That's Dr. Greg Barton, Professor of Global Islamic Politics at Deakin University. U.S. Commerce Chief again has hyped the so-called China threat and asked U.S. companies to cooperate to prevent the development of Chinese chips. U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo said her department needs more money to stop China from catching up on cutting-edge semiconductors. Speaking at a NANU National Defense Forum in California, Raimondo called Beijing the biggest threat U.S. has ever had and stressed China is not a friend. The call for increased funding comes in the wake of Washington's previous efforts to impose limitations on semiconductor exports to China. In October, U.S. Department of Commerce unveiled a series of restrictions on export of advanced chips to China, including those used in the development of artificial intelligence. So to delve deeper into this matter, let's have Andy Mock, tech analyst and a senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. Thanks for joining us, Andy. Great to be with you. Andy, considering recent efforts from both China and the U.S. to stabilize ties, especially with a meeting of the two top leaders at uh, San Francisco, how do you read such remarks from a high-level U.S. official uh, like Raimondo now? Well, you know, it certainly is not helpful for improving the China-U.S. relationship, but it's also what I think we can expect from American politicians. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just another example, the latest example, of American fecklessness. And by fecklessness, I mean this uh, indifference or a lack of seriousness when it comes to uh, one's responsibilities or duties. Because we look over the years, um, American politicians have always said, look, 
we can say what we want to whoever we want in a very two-faced kind of way. And we see this especially in American political elections or, you know, where when candidates are running for office, they go on about how terrible China is, but when they, if they are elected, uh, they act differently. So I think this is, you know, again, it's, it's an example of fecklessness. It's very unhelpful, and I think it only diminishes the stature of these politicians and, frankly, the United States in the eyes of the world. Andy, speaking of two faces of the U.S. politicians, uh, the U.S. Commerce Chief stressed the importance of national security in dealing with China, but also expressed the intent to develop commercial relations with China. So how do you look at these contradictions, such as emphasizing the importance of commercial relations with China while labeling China as the biggest threat by uh, U.S. Department of Commerce? What does it say about Washington's strategy toward China in general? Well, you know, I think it certainly does shed light on Washington's approach to China. But I think more deeply, it just sheds even more light on the American way of understanding and interacting with the world. Meaning that, you know, another way we could describe this approach is criticizing China, calling it a threat, and at the same time wanting the benefits of engaging with it, uh, is wanting to eat your cake and have it too, right? (laughs) And, you know, this is a deeply irresponsible way of of thinking about the world and understanding the world. Um, And yet, you know, this is a pattern, you know, we see with American politicians. So, you know, I think the, the, the idea is that people like Secretary Raimondo, other politicians that have engaged in this behavior, is they can say and do whatever they want um, as long as it benefits them. And it's frankly an insult to countries like China uh, and other countries that uh, face this kind of behavior. Because we earlier mentioned Washington has revealed a series of restrictions on China's cheap industry, but many experts and American companies in the realm believe that the repressive measures taken by the United States against China have not and cannot achieve their intended effects in the long run. Do you share the same stance? What impact have such moves had on the U.S. chip industry today? Oh, I absolutely do. Well, first of all, we have to look at her comments uh, to American companies in this speech and to NVIDIA in particular, mm-hmm. uh, you know, saying that, um, you know, this is uh, that the, I believe the word she used was cranky, that companies get cranky with, with her, mm-hmm. uh, the Commerce Department's actions. And here's the thing, though, even this on the face of it is completely disconnected from reality. Because if she's the Commerce Secretary, shouldn't she understand the strategic dynamics of the semiconductor industry if it is such a strategic industry to the U.S.? And we know that the most important uh, long-term objective for these companies is to earn enough money to invest in the next generation of R&D. And if companies like NVIDIA lose significant revenue, um, you know, this in and of itself could undermine their long-term uh, competitiveness. At the same time, this is also clearly signaling to China that, look, we really should be careful about depending on these companies, and we need to develop our own 
reliable, trustworthy alternatives. And once they do, companies like NVIDIA will be in a lot of trouble. Andy, speaking of that, despite U.S. efforts to crack down on China in critical technological fields, Chinese companies have made breakthroughs. For example, the most recent breakthrough is that Chinese chip maker Longsun Technology released a new generation of domestic-made computer central processing units with performance reaching the level of international mainstream products. How do you view China's capability for high-tech breakthroughs today? Oh, I think China's ability to make... uh technological advances is formidable. Um, You know, look at everything from the space program, uh, quantum computing, and of course, in semiconductors, uh, and in the uh, field of, um, you know, like semiconductors, like I was just saying. I mean, look at Huawei, right? So they uh, went through a very difficult period with these sanctions, and yet, through their resilience and determination, uh, were able to not only develop completely new lines of business, but also uh, cleanse their supply chain of American technology uh, to bounce back in the smartphone space. So, and this is what I mean again by American fecklessness, meaning mm-hmm. not taking one's responsibilities seriously, uh, because these are, uh, you know, they demonstrate a lack of trustworthiness, uh, but they're also self-defeating in the long run. So, you know, one would hope for better or better from American politicians. But again, you know, this is nothing new. It's only the latest uh, instance of this kind of uh, deep lack of responsibility and seriousness. Andy, uh, one last question. Let's talk about the so-called China threat theory from U.S. politicians, because Chinese experts refute this theory as imagined by some U.S. politicians. Uh, They suggest that U.S. is living in a state of anxiety uh, regarding China today. What's your take on this? In your opinion, how does the perception of a China threat influence U.S. policy? And what might be the consequences of such perceptions on diplomatic efforts? today? Oh, well, I think, you know, it, it absolutely is true that there are uh, powerful, influential American politicians that see China as a threat. And I wouldn't say they're wrong, because what is going on here is that for many, many years, for decades, uh, the U.S. could say and do as it pleased, because it was the most powerful country in the world, and no one could do anything about it. Now we're in a world of multipolarity. China, of course, uh, can uh, act independently and is acting independently. Now, whether or not it has any uh, intentions that the U.S. fears, just the fact that it is able to uh, withstand these kinds of American, uh, essentially, attacks, is undermining the U.S. ability to act fecklessly. So it's been imposing a kind of accountability on the United States. And I think in this way, uh, this is a threat to a certain view of the Uni- how the U.S. sees itself. And it's important to, uh, you know, one can only hope that the U.S. can move past this. But is zero-sum competition or major power competition the only way out for China and the U.S., as U.S. expected? Well, again, we have to see, right? Now, this is why 
the relationship between China and the U.S. is so important. Because if one side is intense on starting a fight, you know, there's really nothing you can do, right? I mean, again, if you're neighbors uh, and your neighbor insists on attacking you physically and through other means, uh, at a certain point, you have no choice uh, mm-hmm. but to respond in kind. So, of course, we all hope that this can be avoided. But this is, again, why uh, everyone around the world pays so much attention to this relationship because of the possibility that it could uh, veer into this much more destructive kind of conflict. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Andy, for your insightful analysis. That's Andy Mock, tech analyst and a senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. OPEC plus countries have agreed to cut oil production by 2.2 million barrels per day in the first quarter of 2024. The move was led by Saudi Arabia, the world's biggest exporter of crude oil, extending a voluntary production cut of 1 million barrels per day. Russia, Iraq, the UAE, and other OPEC plus members follow the Saudis' announcement with their own voluntary cuts. What's the market response to this? For more on this, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. So, Dr. Zhou, Saudi Arabia and other OPEC countries announced to cut the oil supply by 2.2 million barrels per day in the first quarter of 2024. So, why are Saudi Arabia and OPEC plus countries doing this? And what are the main factors behind this decision of the group? Yeah, I think that uh, they make these decisions are just uh, following the expectation of the market because the market really see that uh, it's a potential for the crude oils in the international markets to drop in the coming years. So they are trying to make it more stabilized by, you know, to cutting the production of the crude oil. And they believe that these actions will try to make their the export of the crude oil with a stronger prices in the coming months. The volume of their cuts equals to actually 2% of the global oil supply. But uh, after the announcement, we've seen the oil prices slumped. So why is that? And what's the outlook for the oil prices for the coming months? Yeah, we're talking about the prices, international market for crude oil. Actually, it's a very complicated issue. Mm. They are decided by so many factors. The first level is about the real demand and the real supply. When there are enough supply of the crude oil, the prices will drop. But when there are not enough, they, they will increase. The second level is about the financial level. Some of the companies are trying to stabilize the future prices, they use the futures and options or other financial derivatives to change or to decide the future prices. So it's a kind of a combination by the two levels. Well, for these decisions of the OPEC, it's mainly about the real economies. So they are trying to make a, you know the prediction or expectations of the market to be more stabilized. But I don't think that it's uh, so uh, useful to about the prices because the markets actually expanded that they will reduce more even for the coming months. But they reduce less. So the market don't uh, satisfy with them. They are trying to 
to to make some other adjustment by the you know the prices. It's a reflect some of the feelings, but it will get him better. I mean, in the coming days, because that the market will gradually get uh, kind of uh, fitted to this uh, new message. And this year, the group have already cut the output by, you know, 3.66 million BPD or the barrels per day, which is 3.7 percent of the global demand. So, how do you see the market response to it so far? And what does that mean for the average people who are buying the petrol at the pump? Actually, when the providers of the crude oil reduce the the production, maybe the prices should go up. I think that market is seeing also the rules. Actually, nowadays we see that、uh, the situation has a little bit、uh, different, because it's not only about their production. There are also many factors, including the geopolitical tensions in the in the、uh, in the areas who are producing the crude oils from Israel to Palestine, and also some of the issues between the United States and Iran. So this kind of shock also have changed the scenarios a lot. So you may find that it is also important for the OPEC to discuss about what kind of other countries can be included in their organization. Like they they want you to recruit Brazil in their organizations, trying to enhance their abilities to decide the the output in the future. But they still cannot finish that, so it's a real problem because we are seeing that OPEC has played a very important role in the past many years. But I don't know whether it will still be the truth in the coming years. So as a people who are using the the gasoline and the output of the the crude oils, must feel some of the impacts along the supply chain. But I would argue that it is only the Reason、uh, because of the crude oil has a、uh, you know a little bit of change because there are still so many different uses of the crude oils.、Mm-hmm. Only very small part of that are using for the gasolines. Many are used for the manufacturings. So it still depends on what can be happen in the coming future.、Mm-hmm. And how do you look at the sluggish market demand of oil? What are the main reasons? And In terms of demand, what are you predicting in terms of the different countries around the world, and what has been slowing down in terms of demand, and where? Yeah,、uh, as for the demand of the crude oil, it's a, it's a very, I think, straightforward. I would say that、uh, it will decrease in the coming future, in my understanding, because the crude oils are, you know. For a lot of usage, are using for the fuels. Well, we see that、uh, the alternative、uh, or the green energies are increasing very quickly, and、uh, the solar panels and the wind, and also other kind of、uh, you know energies are providing people more choices. So in the past, it's not that easy for the people to use that because of the infrastructure, because of not enough equipment of using that. Now we see that there are so many innovations. The new energy vehicles are creating much better, you know, the feelings for the consumers. And also, many of the houses are using their the solar panels to produce the electricity for themselves. So I would say that the future will change a lot with the usage of the the, the fossil oil, fossil fuels. So it will be a very big impact on the structure of the crude oil.
And we still remember that oil last traded at over one hundred U.S. dollars a barrel in the year twenty fourteen, and in the year twenty twenty, the oil prices was in the range of thirty to forty U.S. dollars, and now it is something near seventy to eighty dollars a barrel. So, Dr. Joe, how did that happen, and how do you look at the oil market fluctuation moving forward with the geopolitical factors and also the economic uncertainties? Yeah, it's a really fluctuated curve. If we are looking at the range, it's moving that high and just dropped that low. Now we are still in the middle age. I mean, compared with that differences, so we can see that the geopolitical issues are mainly one of the the factor that will make the the gasolines becoming. Or the crude oil becoming more expensive, while、well, the production and also the fund of new oil fields will giving more expectations for more supplies to drop the、uh, uh, the prices of the crude oils. So in this、uh, very special time, I would say that、uh, innovation of the technology and the consumptions are really shaping the trend and changing the pattern. We can say that.、Uh, The the future it's、uh, still unpredictable, but I would say that the more choices will make the people are thinking more about how can we use the crude oil for maybe we can use for the more petrochemical industries for the textiles for a better usage、uh, for different kind of things like for the the packages or other things, but not for the for the fuels because we have to reduce the carbon emission. It is one of our Our common commitments to the world,、mm, and for the global energy structure, how much do you think can fossil fuels like the coal and oil be replaced by the clean or renewable energy in the near future? I think that it still depends on. For some countries who have、um, many、uh, of the alternative choices, they may transfer a little bit quicker if they have enough capital, and the people are willing to do that. But for some poor country, especially the least developed country, I don't think that is so easy for them to transfer from the fossil fuels to the new energy. They need help if they can be able to fulfill the commitments. I think that the international community should help them to reduce their cost of the transfer. That is definitely what we should do by the even more important economies in the world to help them to reduce the carbon emissions and to to、uh, transmit as quicker as possible. That was Dr. Jiangmi, senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. That's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. I'm Ge Anna. Thank you so much for staying with us. Bye for now. 